Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Before I read our scripture text, I want to give you proper warning. It's a long text, and it is a vivid and sometimes maybe a bit disturbing text. And uh, as we're preaching through the entire book of Revelation, sometimes we run into some of these challenging scriptures. So as I read it, I want you to, to listen with your imagination. You know, the book of Revelation was meant to be read aloud, and it was meant to stir our emotion and our imagination. And so we're going to read this together, and I encourage you to do that as we read. It says, Revelation 9. <clears throat> the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold. Their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like that of thundering of many horses and chariots running into battle. They had tails with stingers, like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The sixth woe, the first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their, peep, their number. The horses and the riders I saw in my vision looked like this. The breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of the fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arcs, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the word of God. It's a dangerous thing to give a fourth-year seminary student a text like this, 
When I rehearsed it last night, I went over an hour. I promise I won't do that this morning. I've cut it quite a bit. I think one of the important things as we're going through this, it, it sometimes feels a little bit like we're piling on. I mean, we're, we're taking a passage in Revelation that was meant to be read from uh, chapters 8 through 11 out loud to the church. It's this, this vision that's meant to be read aloud, and we're breaking it into chunks, which can be a little bit troublesome because we finish this reading and it just sort of ends in sadness. And so what I want to do to start, because we're, we're still going to be working through this book and we've got a ways to go, is I want to take a bird's eye view a little bit of the book of Revelation, because I think it's going to be important for us to be able to understand how it is that we're going to be interpreting these words. Now, understanding that the book was written in the first century, we always want to read this thinking, what was the author's intent for those in the first century? Understanding that the author's intent was written to those who are suffering and dealing with persecution in the first century. That's an important piece. And it's going to show them that in the end, God will win and there's going to be comfort even in the midst of difficult times of endurance. And the Christian church has been reading Revelation for the last 2,000 years, which means they have been interpreting it all kinds of ways. Because of that, because there are different ways of interpreting the book, I think it's really important for us to take a brief look at what those are, because it's going to change what the implications are for the meaning of what the text says. So real quickly, I want to take us through the four, and there there are many subsets of these four, but these are the four ways that traditionally the church has interpreted the book of Revelation. The first view, and I have it on the screen here, is the historicism view. When the historicist interprets the book of Revelation, they look at the past and they draw parallels between John's vision and significant historical events. Now the difficulty with this view, and it's a smaller minority view, is that it's very subjective. Do the locusts represent the 1500s when the Reformation happened? Uh, Do we tie these, these horse armies to literal armies? It's tying very literal events in history to these symbols and numbers, and oftentimes that can become very speculative in nature. I say that knowing full well that many godly men and women have held this view throughout church history. Uh, I mean, Spurgeon sort of dabbled with this a little bit. And so we, we, we look at this and we say, okay, this is a way the, the scriptures, specifically Revelation, has been interpreted, but maybe there is another way. The second I want to address is the preterist view. The preterist view is an approach to Revelation that understands that most of the book was fulfilled in the decades immediately following the establishment of the church. So essentially, this view is most of what's going on in this book um, are being fulfilled actually in the first century. So all these cataclysmic events aren't talking about the whole world throughout all of history or talking about something that's going to happen in the future per se, but rather what Jesus predicted in the fall of Jerusalem, which Jesus said would happen in his generation. If we read it in this perspective we'll see a lot and just about most of Revelation as very symbolic. There again, I want to remind you that there are many godly men and women who have held this view throughout church history. The third view. This is the futurism view, the futurist view that interprets the book of Revelation as literally and as chronologically as possible. This view leaves very little room for symbolism. Now that's sort of the 
far end of the futurist view. Um, Basically, we have the first three churches in Revelation, or the first three chapters that are written to the seven churches, and then everything from then on, okay, so from chapters four moving all the way to 19, it's going to take place in a very specific time in the future. They call the tribulation. And why this is important to understand is that those who interpret the book of Revelation with a futurist lens, that all of the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven bowls, all of those things are going to happen chronologically in order, and they're all going to happen within a seven-year period. You can imagine that changes everything about how we interpret this book. Now, there are a lot of subsets within that. There's the premillennial view. There's the postmillennial, millennial There's the full dispensationalist view within that. And this view actually was popularized really in the 1900s by a guy named C.I. Schofield. There were biblical prophecy conferences. There were godly teachers throughout history who have held this view as well. And I, I want to be clear. I, I want to say with all humility that I could be very wrong. And if you disagree with me on this, I'd love to have a cup of coffee and have a chat about it. But I am partial to this last view that we're going to look at. This is the idealist view. This view sees an allegorical representation of the types of things or events believers may expect in the time between the inauguration of Christ's kingdom and its consummation, also called the amillennial view. This view looks at, and actually I have a chart here that will actually help show us what this looks like. From when Jesus comes until the second coming of Christ, we are actually living in the millennium. And so the book of Revelation is actually speaking in symbolic ways to all the things that the church may experience throughout its history. One one illustration that I found helpful was it's kind of like if you go to a professional football game. You're at the football game and they have cameras everywhere. They've got a camera on the pylon. They've got a MetLife blimp. They've got cameras on on, on dollies and moving around. There are cameras all throughout the arena getting different angles, different perspectives. But all of these cameras are all focusing on the same game. In a sense, the seven, uh, if you want to pull up the chart, I have the seven uh, different The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, all three of these are pulling back the curtain, giving us a perspective of what is happening in the spiritual realm now, in the past, and in the future. So in a sense, are we living in the end times? Yes. The church has always been living in the end times. That being said, this view does believe in the end when Jesus will return, and we we can match that with Jesus' words in Luke. Now, There are a lot of reasons why I lean towards this perspective. Again, I could be wrong, uh, but one of those is that historically the church has held this position. Augustine through Luther and Calvin, um, many, many theologians have held this perspective in understanding, interpreting the book of Revelation. And why I think it's so important and why I think it's important for us to zoom out is that it actually has massive implications for how we view discipleship. Because if this book is written for the church now, who's in the midst of this, that's a lot different than saying someday the church is going to go through this massive tribulation. And I actually think it's more consistent with the Greek text where the great tribulation is used throughout Revelation to mark multiple tribulations that the church will experience. So to uh, summarize all that, 
Amillennialism understands the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus and his apostles to be synonymous with the millennial kingdom of Revelation 24 through 6, which we'll get to someday. We'll get there. Now, there are different ways people have interpreted the book of Revelation. But from this perspective, we're going to be looking at the seven trumpets. Last week, Mike did a wonderful job taking us through the first four trumpets, which were physical in nature. Okay, we had mountains falling into the sea. We had uh, hail and fire and blood, very physical realities that were happening all throughout the world. And we now move. You notice every single one of these judgments, they happen in the same structure, which is part of why I think the argument for it not being chronological makes a lot more sense. There's four together. There's an interlude. There's the fifth and sixth judgment, interlude, and the seventh judgment. This is the same with the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. We are at the seven trumpets in five and six. And if you thought last week was bad, it's about to get worse. What we have here, we're going to zoom in a little bit, is there's three major ideas that we're going to see in all of these judgments. One, what Jesus has done, which is which is great news, what he's doing now and what he will do in the end. In this section, we are looking at what Jesus is doing now. He's playing an active role in the midst of these judgments. So we're going to pull back the curtain. We're going to look back at the vision John is getting is pulling back the curtain and seeing what is happening in our midst in the spiritual realm. And we have to rewind just a little bit. If you go back to Revelation 6, remember we have the martyrs who cry out. They say, Lord, when will you vindicate us? When will you bring an end to all this madness? And then God says, there will be a time when all of this ends. But there are more who are set apart for martyrdom that I have yet to take home. But there will be an end. And so this is a preview of partial judgment when there, in the end, will be ultimate judgment. He's saying to the church, you need to endure and be patient. So, trumpets one through four. Then we have the eagle. The eagle swoops in. We don't really understand fully the symbolism of the eagle, but it represents judgment in the Old Testament. Comes in and cries out with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe. And then we have the fifth trumpet. Here, we move out of the physical. So trumpets one through four, very physical realities, and into a deep spiritual reality. I'm going to read in verse one. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth." There are a lot of scholars who agree that this fallen star is the devil, Satan himself. And it isn't a stretch because throughout the scriptures, Satan is referred to as a fallen angel. This is a common thing that is pointed to. In fact, Jesus' words were, I saw Satan uh, falling like lightning from heaven. And there's also no mistaking that the locusts here that are being released from the abyss, the bottomless pit, are demonic spirits whose purpose is to torment and destroy the lives of the unbelieving men and women. 
We know this because they come out of the bottomless pit, okay? So this, this word in the Greek is abusos. It's used nine times in the New Testament, including the moment when Jesus, if you remember uh, the account where he sends the pigs off the cliff, he sends the demonic spirits into the pigs, that same word abusos is used here to, to describe where the pigs return to. He banishes them into the abyss. We have this shaft uh, of the abyss, which is portrayed by a blocked door that only God alone has the key. And now, obviously, this isn't a literal portal to hell, okay? This isn't, there's no literal door um, or a literal key. This is a symbolic image of what happens when this demonic power is unleashed, it's meant to capture our imagination or give us a, a sense of awe and wonder and, and in some ways, a, a healthy amount of fear. We have the angel at the bottomless pit who is Abaddon or Apollyon, which is most likely Satan himself. And John's vision is designed to help us see beyond the material world and get a glimpse into the spiritual dynamics that make, helps us make sense of what's happening in our society and culture. So the demonic beings here are being portrayed as locusts to whom authority and power is given. Now we, we uh, have use of the passive voice in the Greek here, which is very important because what it shows us is that these locusts are given authority. It says they were told in verse four, and then in verse five, it says they were allowed, which means the demons did not have the authority to just run amok, but instead the, the passive voice points us to this divine authority that God or the risen Christ has commissioned and authorized this to happen. This is a picture of the sovereignty of God, not just over humanity, but over the spiritual realm as well. In Exodus 10, we have these plagues, okay? If you remember back, the locusts come into the earth and they cover the sun. It becomes so dark when the locusts enter the picture. We read in Exodus that they ate all the plants of the land, all the fruits of the trees, and they had nothing left. There's not a green thing remaining. But in this circumstance, notice what authority God gives the locusts. He says, you are not allowed to eat the land. You are not to harm the grass or plant or any tree, which gives us a clue that this isn't a physical group of locusts, but rather symbolizing something much more sinister. Also remember, as terrifying as this sounds, this was written actually as encouragement to the early church. Why? This is a reminder, um, if you remember, the demons are not allowed to attack any of those who have that seal on their forehead, meaning the people of God. And so these demons were not to attack the church that's being persecuted, but rather those who were the oppressors and the persecutors. And so the people of God are not to experience this wrath in this specific trumpet. God's people will never suffer this wrath. And it also proves why the 144,000 uh, in Revelation 7 and 14 who are sealed on their forehead actually refers not to a very specific group of people, only 144,000, but rather it is all of God's people, Jew, Gentile, everyone who is in the family of God will be safe from this attack. Again, how we interpret this book matters because if we believe in a literal group of people, it seems very contradictory to God's character that he would choose only a small group rather than all those who proclaim the name of Jesus. Now, two big ideas here. First, they were not allowed to kill anyone. 
Okay, so this isn't a physical killing in this instance, but rather to torment them, which is really quite terrifying because the image uses with a scorpion stabbing them, which is an awful picture. But the torment will only last for five months. So it's not an eternal torment in this case. Some take that literally. I I think it's more fair and consistent to read that as just a, a, a time that was chosen, a long time, but not forever. Uh, five months is the lifestyle of a locust, so maybe that was why they chose the five months. We can't be certain. But the word torment in the book of Revelation is used for spiritual, emotional, and psychological pain. In the end, as the passage tells us, this torment led people to want to die. It led them to wanting to die. John is describing utter despair that comes from being apart from God. When God allows you to chase your idolatry to the point to where your soul deteriorates and sometimes leads us towards death itself. God is allowing this to happen. People who are far from Jesus are desperate to find meaning and dignity, whether it's in complex philosophies, pleasures of wealth, uh, new age movements, the reincarnation, political idolatry, drugs, sexual immorality, magic arts, materialism, whatever it might be, whatever idols people chase, it ultimately leads to the deterioration of the soul. And the main point here is that there are demonic forces in the world that are moving people towards those things. That is the goal of Satan, to move us as far away from God as possible. Now, you still with me? The locusts, real quick, we gotta talk about the description because it's weird, all right? Uh, They were like horses prepared for battle. Their heads looked like crowns of gold, um, which likely was a reference to their, their sort of authority in the non-Christian world. Their faces were like human faces, which perhaps was pointing to their intelligence. They had hair like women hair, which in the Old Testament, women with long hair uh, was a sign of mourning. It was also a, unclean, a sign of uncleanliness for those with leprosy. And it was also uh, part of a sacrificial protocol for the woman accused with adultery. So long hair was seen as sort of a negative in that aspect. Their teeth were like lion's teeth, which is a proverbial expression. The teeth of a lion is something irresistibly or fatally destructive. And they had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, pointing to their invulnerability. The sound of their wings was the noise of many chariots rushing into battle. This is strikingly similar to what we read in Joel uh, chapter 2. They have tails that sting like scorpions, which is a vivid way to betray the torment that they inflict on mankind. And then there's a king over all of them, which is most likely referring to Satan himself or a representative of Satan. All right, we take a breath. It's going to get worse. We have the sixth trumpet next. In verse 13, We're not sure what voice John hears. It could be that of Jesus. It could be an angel. It could be the voice of God the Father. We can't be certain. But the fact is the voice comes from the golden altar. So it connects the sixth trumpet uh, judgments with the saint's prayer in Revelation 6. And we see in verse 14 that four angels have been bound at the great river Euphrates, apparently restrained against their will. This would suggest that the four angels are actually demons. 
These demonic invaders are coming. This is the important thing I want us to get out of this. At the appointed time, at God's appointed time, it says they've been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Why does that matter? It points us to this important truth that God is in complete control, not only of what, the sat- what Satan and the demons are allowed to do, but also the precise time when they have been ordained by God to do it. God is sovereign over the spiritual world. And their aim is to kill a third of mankind. John is describing here a partial judgment, not a full judgment. One third means partial. And though it's not explicitly stated, in verse 16 through 19, these four angels have uh, massive power over this demonic army of horsemen. Now the number, I think this, this part of the text is kind of funny to me. It says John was, knew the number, but he doesn't, it was so big he didn't even know how to describe it. So he uses this expression. He says, it was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Now math is hard, but I think it's 200 million. I'm probably wrong. I'm really bad at math. But that's a lot of demon horses, and that's what matters the most. Okay, you have these demon horses. There's a massive horde of them. It's a really terrifying picture. And that, to be consistent for how we've been interpreting this book, we just need to understand that it's an incalculable number. It's a massive number of horses. And it seems clear to me as well, uh, from what we saw in Revelation 9, 1 through 11, that the description of these horsemen is describing not a literal army of horses, but rather a, a portrayal of demonic hosts who are going to inflict physical havoc, which we'll look at in just a second. So if you remember, the, the demon locusts were not allowed to actually kill people, but they were allowed to torment. In this case, uh, the demonic army from beyond the Euphrates is permitted to kill Is this a literal, physical death with swords and uh, snake tails or whatever they got? I don't think that's what's being referred to here. The verb translated kill generally refers to physical death. We see this in Revelation 20. It says the rest who were not killed. That's the same Greek word there. If that's the meaning, what I think John is trying to do is describe how this demonic force is killing a sizable number of people, whether through illness, whether through infectious disease, whether through accidents, natural disasters, famine, suicide, or maybe even their idols that are leading them to death, the things they are chasing that are ultimately destroying them from the inside out. What do we make of all this? I took two preaching classes in seminary and nothing prepared me for preaching Revelation. There's a couple things I think we can, we can pull from the text. Um, it sort of wraps up here, and we, verse 20 um, tells us that there were many who were not killed, and the worst part was, even though they didn't suffer the judgment, they still returned to their idols, their sexual immorality, their witchcraft. It was like they saw all of the death and destruction, and even in that, they did not leave their idolatry. I think one of the big ideas that we're seeing here is that all idolatry in whatever form is ultimately energized and representative of demonic activity. And I think what we have to keep in mind is that there are places where there is oppression and there is uh, churches that are being persecuted all throughout the world, even now as we speak today. 
sitting from a place of privilege, of a place of a church where we don't have to worry about the fear of persecution. We don't have to worry about whether our church will be standing each week. I actually, I saw a tweet, uh, one of our elders, Susan Lear, uh, retweeted this. I have the quote on the screen. This is from John Ide. He's a director of some of the churches in Ukraine. We actually have a connection with the EBC with some of these churches. But he said this, I talked to the pastor in Kiev today after last night's bombing. He didn't get much sleep, but he was still preparing his sermon for tomorrow morning. If the church is still standing, he plans to make his way there and hold services. We don't have to worry about whether our church will be standing, but this is a sober reminder that there are places in the world where it is not safe to gather and worship, where persecution is happening, and the book of Revelation was written for them to understand and have comfort that even though there is affliction now, that in the end, there will be hope. It is an encouragement to endure It was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. In the midst of affliction and suffering, God is ministering to the church who is desperately in need of encouragement. And he's also speaking to those who have returned to their idols and he's saying, turn around. You keep going down this path of destruction, it will inevitably kill you. So two takeaways I want to leave you with this morning. One, I think a theme we can draw from this is that all of us are prone to idolatry. Even as followers of Jesus, even as people of God, we have a a tendency to allow idolatry to slip into our heart, and sometimes we aren't able to see it. Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, And I love the way Keller defines idolatry. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so I want to leave you this morning with a question. To examine our own hearts for a minute. Are you looking for fill in the blank, whatever thing or person it might be, Are you looking for it to give you things which only God can give you? Whether that's a job, whether that's a relationship, whether that's uh, identity, security, love, rest, hope, a political vision, whatever, whatever that might be, whatever thing we're looking to to bring salvation or bring some sort of sense of, if I could only have this thing, I would be complete. If you can identify that, Allow the Holy Spirit to maybe reveal that in you. It's that first step of identifying our idolatry to when we can repent and we can lay that at the feet of Jesus and say, God, if I can't have that, I will still find contentment in you. The second thing I want to leave you with is I know preaching through Revelation can be um, daunting it's like each week, we were, it's another judgment. It's more calamity. It's, it's more, uh, this week, demons and scorpions. It's kind of intense. Um, and I think as we do this each week, sometimes it's like, well, where's the, ho- where's the good news in all of this? This is, this is really difficult. One of the struggles is that Revelations 8 through 11 was meant to be read in, in one sitting. We're supposed to know the end without just sort of stopping in the middle. 
And so I want to give you sort of a big picture um, why this is important and why it matters. Easter is quickly approaching. We're in the season of Lent. It's sort of a waiting season, but I want to give you just a little a foretaste of what's coming. John, when he wrote the gospel, said the word became flesh, and that word was referring to Christ himself. So the question I have to, to, to wrestle with at the end here is why did Jesus have to die? Why did the word become flesh? Why did Jesus come to earth, live a perfect life, and die on a cross? Well, I could take you to John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, that, that God in his love for a fallen world sent Jesus because of his love and he wants us to be in his family. And that is the gospel that is great news for all of us. But there's more than that. I could point to what Jesus himself said in Matthew 20, 28. He said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. And that also would be true. That God was a servant of all. That Jesus was a servant to all people and his life was a ransom for us on our behalf. And I could point you to Romans 3.23. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That you and me do not fall, we all fall short of that glory. That we are justified by his grace as a gift. That through the redemption that is Christ Jesus put forward as a sacrifice, atonement by his blood, effective through faith. To demonstrate that Jesus took the wrath that you and I deserved on the cross so that we could have right standing before God, that our righteousness is not our own, but Christ himself. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news. But I've heard it said that the gospel is shallow enough a toddler can swim and deep enough that you can drown an elephant. There's more than that. You see, the gospel, the big picture, the, the, the beauty of the gospel, it's a, I've heard it described as a diamond. You can, you can see the simplicity of the diamond, but when you shine light, it reflects and it refracts and you see these lights in various display. There's actually one that is often overlooked, and a, a theory of the atonement, if you will, that is often overlooked. Why did Jesus come? And that is actually the emphasis of the book of Revelation. We get a clue to what this is, in the words of John in his epistle, his third epistle, he wrote this. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, Jesus came to live a sinless life that, that you and I should have lived but are unable to do so perfectly. And in order to live this sinful life, Jesus had to resist the temptation of Satan, defeat the enemy's efforts to destroy him. And yes, Jesus came to take away sins by dying on a cross. It was by the means of the cross that Paul says in Colossians uh, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's the Satan and his demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And delivered all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's in Hebrews 2. So why did Jesus come to earth? Why did the Father send the Son? God the Father sent God the Son in the power of God and the Spirit to defeat and overthrow and ultimately destroy Satan and all of his works. This is the incredible good news of Revelation. That God has defeated Satan and that he has the final word. 
I'll close with one last little thing. In the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the scriptures, there's that moment in Genesis 3 when God is cursing the serpent. And he says things like, this, you as a serpent, you will now crawl on your belly. You will eat dust. And he, he's cursing the serpent. At the end, he says, and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Friends, this is the proto-evangelion, the very first moment the gospel is proclaimed in the very beginning of the scriptures. That yes, Satan will get his strike that yes, Jesus will be on a cross, but ultimately in Christ's death, the great twist is that Jesus crushes the devil's head. Friends, that is the good news of Christus Victor. That is the gospel. This week, the devil and all hell broke loose. But get excited, because in the coming weeks, the seventh trumpet is coming, and God will have the final word.